This film is lit, the podcast where we finally settle the score on one simple question. Is the book really better than the movie? I'm Brian, and I have a film degree, so I watch the movie, but don't read the book. And I'm Katie. I have an English degree, so I do things the right way and read the book before we watch the movie. So prepare to be wowed by our expertise and charm as we dissect all of your favorite film adaptations and decide if the silver screen or the written word did it better. So turn it up, settle in, and get ready for spoilers, because this film is lit. I am putting myself to the fullest possible use, which is all I think that any conscious entity can ever hope to do. It's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and this film is lit. Well, welcome back to This Film Is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. It is, I don't know how it took us 140 episodes to get to this one, but... We are finally talking about 2001, A Space Odyssey, a classic of science fiction film, uh, and based on a short story by Arthur C. Clarke, which we're going to talk about. We don't have a guess who this week, uh, which is pretty common for short story related stuff, but we do have every other segment, so we're going to get right into it. If you have not read or watched 2001, A Space Odyssey recently, we're going to give you a little brief summary of both the short story and the film in Let Me Sum Up. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. The Sentinel by Arthur C. Clarke. In the imagined future of 1996, a group of scientists is mapping the surface of the moon. One day, one of them spies something glittering on a distant hilltop. He and another scientist decide to go have a look. They reach the base of the outcrop and scale it. Once at the top, they see that the top is completely flat, and in its center is a small, glittering metallic pyramid. The narrator's initial thought is that they've discovered evidence of a previous lunar civilization, but then quickly thinks otherwise. He realizes that although the surrounding area is covered in thick moon dust, there is a perfect circle around the pyramid that is completely clean. He tosses a small rock, which bounces off of an invisible force field. The story then jumps forward in time, and we learn that it took years for humankind to break through the force field to investigate the pyramid, and once they did, they couldn't determine what the purpose of it was. The narrator surmises that the pyramid was likely a sentinel placed on the moon by a more advanced species, to signal to them that humanity had progressed enough to be capable of space travel. Here's the summary for 2001, A Space Odyssey, the film. We open on a group of early hominins in Africa. One tribe is chased away from a watering hole by a rival tribe. The next day, the tribe that uh, lost that battle discovers a large black rectangular monolith. After interacting with the monolith, one of the hominins discovers the concept of tools and weapons after picking up an animal bone. This hominin's tribe then uses these weapons to defeat the other tribe and reclaim the watering hole. Cut to millions of years in the future, we're introduced to Dr. Haywood Floyd, who is traveling to Clavius, Clavius base on the moon. Uh, on his way there, he encounters some Russians, uh, and he discusses rumors about the base <clears throat> with these Russian scientists who mention that no one has heard from Clavius in over a week, and there's speculation and rumors that there has been some epidemic, and that is what is causing this radio silence. 
When Haywood arrives at the base, it is revealed that the reason for the radio silence is, in fact, that the base has discovered a black monolith in Tycho Crater that is nearly identical to the monolith from the opening in Africa. Upon inspecting the monolith, it emits a high-powered radio signal that overwhelms the scientists studying it. Eighteen months later, we join up with the American spacecraft Discovery 1, which is on its way to Jupiter, uh, with pilots Dr. Dave Bowman and Dr. Frank Poole, as well as three other scientists in suspended animation. The sixth member of the crew is HAL, who is a HAL 9000 supercomputer with a human personality that controls most of the operations and technology on the ship. HAL reports a problem with an antenna control device, claiming that the piece of equipment will soon fail. Dave removes the device and tests it, but it is unable. But they are unable to find any issues. HAL insists that the part is faulty and that the only explanation for this incongruence is human error, while mission control back on Earth, their backup computer is telling them that HAL has made a mistake. Frank and Dave become concerned about Hal's behavior, and while sitting in an EVA pod to avoid Hal hearing them, they discuss shutting Hal down if necessary, but Hal is able to follow this conversation by reading their lips through the pod's window. When Frank then goes out to replace the antenna unit, Hal takes control of his EVA pod and sends Frank adrift, resulting in his death. Dave then ventures out to rescue Frank slash retrieve his body, and while he's outside, Hal shuts off the life support on the three crew members in stasis, killing them. Then Dave returns to the ship with Frank's body, and Hal refuses to let him in, forcing Dave to abandon Frank's body and then use the emergency escape hatch on the pod to traverse the vacuum of space without a helmet, uh, and then he makes it safely back into the ship's airlock. Dave then heads to Hal's processor core, disconnects Hal as Hal begs him not to, and slowly and creepily shuts down. Upon Hal shutting down, the ship plays a recording from Dr. Haywood explaining that the true purpose of the mission was to investigate the radio signal that was sent from the monolith on the moon to Jupiter. Arriving at Jupiter, Dave discovers a gigantic third monolith orbiting the planet. Upon inspecting this monolith in his EVA pod, Dave travels through a stargate, observing a vortex of colored light and bizarre cosmological phenomena before arriving in a large neoclassical bedroom where he sees and becomes older versions of himself. After several age progressions, a very old and seemingly dying Dave lies in bed. A monolith appears in the room at the end of his bed. Dave reaches for it and then is then transformed into a space fetus floating around Earth. The end. <laughs> uh, I, that was mostly copied uh, with some slight additions and tweaks by myself from Wikipedia's summary of the story for this film. Uh, we also wanted to talk about, I just wanted to mention again, we talked about it in the prequel, but if you don't listen to the prequel, there is a novelization of this film that was written in concert with the film yeah. by Arthur C. Clarke that some people may ask, why aren't we doing that one? Um, we generally don't do novelizations, usually because they're a little bit different. This one's right on that line where it's it's different enough than the film. Or sorry, they're usually too similar, I guess is what I should say, the, the, the novelization and the film. In this one, it was written along the same time as the film, but it's basically based on the film kind of reverses the order of how we generally yeah. like like to explore this the, the these things uh the way we do our podcast um going from book to film so this one is kind of like uh, that weird middle land where it's again it was written simultaneously it is different enough from the film that i you may be able to make an argument but we wanted to go to the source material that initially uh kubrick was pulling from him and clark when they wrote this screenplay which was The Sentinel, along with a couple other short stories, but primarily The Sentinel was the main short story that he chose, uh, and then they expanded upon, and we're just going to see what roots 
are there again i just because the, the a, a lot of the basically every question i answered for the novelization the answer would be yes for the most part because it's mm-hmm. it is just a novelization of the film with some additional stuff and additional context and information and stuff like that and we'll talk a little bit about some of the stuff that's in that novelization but again that's why we didn't do that but we are doing the short story Hopefully that answers anybody's question <laughs> in case they're like, why didn't you do the novelization? But yes, that's what's going on there. So that all being said, I have quite a few questions. We're going to get into those in Was That in the Book? Nicholas Flamel is the only known maker of the Philosopher's Stone. The what? Honestly, don't you two read? Uh, so I am expecting a lot of the answers for these questions to be no. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, which is usually the case when we do a short story. Um and in particular, this one, I we talked a little bit at length, you know, we talked a little bit ahead of time about what, you know, we knew in the prequel that there was other stories they were pulling from and other stuff. So I'm not I'm not going to be surprised if the answer to many of these questions is no. But I still wanted to ask about a lot of the big sort of, you know, iconic imagery, lines, that sort of stuff from the film. Obviously not every single one, but a lot of them and see if any of that came from the short story. So the film opens up on the Dawn of Man sequence. Uh, which I described in the summary, which is the the the, the hominins in Africa, um, their whole thing, discovering the monolith, learning to use weapons, match cut to space station. So, or satellite, not a space station. So I wanted to know if anything from that sequence came from the Sentinel, the story. I It's kind of a two-part question. Mainly, one, anything with the the, the sort of Dawn of Man sequence and then two subsection B, the monolith. I assume the monolith does because I assume that's why it's called the Sentinel. I imagine maybe the Sentinel is the monolith. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to know. Yes, those are the two questions here. <laughs> Dawn of Man sequence, and then subsequently tied into that, the monolith. Did those come from the Sentinel? Okay, so the Dawn of Man sequence is not from the Sentinel. It's supposedly inspired by another of Clark's short stories called Encounter at Dawn. Okay. I skimmed that story. I found like a PDF of it and I skimmed through it. It was only like nine pages long. Um, And it is about a manned space mission finding a planet that's similar to Earth in early civilization. Mm -hmm. And they do interact with a group of people native to the planet, but the story isn't very similar to the movie sequence at all. Uh, the beings in the story are far more advanced. They're like an early society. Yes. They have a village with a wall. Um, one of them is hunting with a spear when they find they're them. They're much more like they're like human. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 like mov- the movie's ancestors. depiction obviously takes place like far before yes. that period yeah. of evolution. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, you're correct that the mysterious alien technology which, as I mentioned, is a pyramid in the short story, mm-hmm. um, is the titular sentinel. But as far as we know, in the short story, there is not one on Earth. They just find the one that's on the moon. Okay. Um, I did think that the Dawn of Man sequence was interesting and creepy. Yeah. Um, if if maybe not evolutionarily accurate. No, I, um, yes. I Obviously, it probably wasn't <laughs> quite so much of a, a yeah uh, an accurate depiction of <laughs> that. But... Uh, I do think it is uh, an interesting. I like the sequence a lot, and I do think I was I was impressed by the uh, how well the mo- we talked about in the prequel that it was mimes and stuff doing mm-hmm. the 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 ape or the the hominins the 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 early ape ancestors whatever these I, I you know yeah. they're not monkeys they're whatever they're early ape ancestors 
I was really impressed by the, the way they were able to make them feel generally like animals and not like people in mm-hmm. suits for the most part, which I thought was pretty impressive. And another thing that I thought was interesting about that segment from your notes here about the, the monolith specifically, I did mention in the prequel episode that the uh, at one point, the early version of the monolith was a pyramid, mm-hmm. um, probably based, you know, from the story, Yeah, probably a little more closer to what's yeah. in the story. And then and it was, uh, I b- believe, clear. And then eventually they made it this rectangular, uh, you know, monolith shape. And then they also decided that the clear didn't look good on camera, especially with lights and stuff and reflections. And, and so they just painted it black mm-hmm. and thought that worked. So uh, the original version of it was much closer to the uh, the stories version. Yeah, it's interesting, the decision to change that. Uh, the, the rectangle, the rectangular monolith is definitely very like foreboding yes um i also think a pyramid maybe arguably comes with too much like cultural baggage for yeah yeah no you definitely i mean you already have a million conspiracy theories about kubrick movies and i think putting a pyramid in there would have just (laughs) added even more yeah there is a lot of uh iconographic baggage Mm -hmm. to a pyramid that there isn't necessarily to uh, a a big black box a big black rectangle yeah (laughs) So then we jump forward from the Dawn of Man sequence and we're introduced to Dr. Haywood and he uh, gets to the space station on his way to the moon. And on the space station, he's talking to these other Russian scientists and they're talking about this Clavius base and about how there hasn't been any communication from them. And I believe they say like 10 days or something like that. And when people call them, they just get like a pre-recorded thing and nobody knows what's going on. And there's speculation that it's an epidemic. And I wanted to know if any of that came from the short story, because I thought that was actually really interesting sort of uh, tension building. And I liked the mysterious setup. I thought it was a fun setup of like, what's going on? We haven't heard from the space Mm -hmm. and we don't even necessarily know that the doctor's going there right away. Like, I don't think initially. Um, he such he does say like when he gives his name and stuff to get into the space. Station, That's right. He says his destination is yes. the moon. Yes. Yeah, so, well, but that doesn't, there's lots of bases on the moon, I think, or several at least. Yeah, at this point. So, so we don't know for sure he's going to this one, uh, but we will find out he's going to the space, but I do like setting up that mystery. And I wanted to know if that came from, from the book, because I, I just thought it was very funny. They set that up and I also like his reaction to it in the movie he's just like they're like it's been 10 days since we heard from them and dr haywood was just like no i'm sure it's fine i'm sure you know they're probably just like hungover or whatever like he's just like "Ah, it's fine uh again i like setting that mystery up and like well what's he clearly he's hiding something yeah Uh, and i went yeah does any of that come from the book no none of that comes from the book Uh, the short story takes place entirely on the moon and it's about the initial discovery of the sentinel which the movie skips over yeah, we're seeing it after they've discovered yeah. it and kind of what they're how they're dealing with, like, you yeah. know, the situation now that they've found it. Yeah, but I agree with you. It is kind of a fun tension building um, and way to show that, like, obviously he does know what's going on, but he does not want to discuss it with these other scientists. Yeah. And then kind of tied into that, I liked how slowly it built up to revealing what it was on the moon and, and then finally seeing the monolith. I really liked how it took a while and then especially coming off of the opening, the Dawn of Man sequence. And you're, you know, we're just building these layers of questions because it's like, okay, well, what's going on on this moon base? And then he gets there and uh, when and and it's like a good 30 minutes before we even get to the moon and then we get to the moon 
and we see the monolith and we're like what the heck that's the same thing from the the you know the uh, prehistoric times in the uh in the opening sequence and i want to know if it, the story built up the revelation of what they found in a similar way like with that same kind of like building mystery it's um, similar to my last question i guess there's there's not as much build up in the shorts it's like a 10 page short story um compared to lots and lots of build up in this movie yeah. um there is a little bit of a build in the short story i would say where we're like with these lunar explorers as they're going to find whatever it is that they saw glittering in the distance mm. Um, most of the story is like about them traveling to it yeah. before they get there. So I, I, you could argue that that's a kind of a build. Yeah. And especially if, so it does set up their, like their, they see something in the distance mm -hmm. and don't know what it is. So there's a little bit of that at least of like, what is it? What are, you yeah. know, kind of like the mystery of trying to figure out what we're going to go see is definitely different. And, uh, it's one of my favorite, I think some, when the movie is most effective to some extent, was that initial build up to that sequence? We'll get to more stuff, but so uh, once we finally get to the monolith and they get down into Tycho Crater where this monolith was uh, discovered, they they're kind of like examining it, looking at it, and they're taking pictures of it. And they take a picture of it with it like all standing in front of it. And when they do that, it emits this very high pitched sound that. Uh, we can hear as the audience, but also they can clearly hear because they all start like ah, yeah, kind of like freaking out. Uh, and we will find out later that it is a like a high energy radio signal that they were was being sent to Jupiter. Um, again, we find this out at the end of the movie, basically, uh, when the little recording plays, I think, uh, with Dr. Haywood. And I wanted to know if that if the monolith of emitting this weird or the sentinel in the book stories uh, case emitting this weird high pitched dr droning noise came from the book because. I was not prepared for it, and neither were our cats. No, they hated it. Uh, so in the book, the the um, pyramid doesn't give off a signal that anyone notices. Okay. So they aren't able to figure out exactly what it does in the book. That they assume that its purpose is to signal to whatever society left it that humanity has advanced enough to be able to find that thing on the moon okay and we'll talk about it more later but that's also the purpose in the movie mm -hmm. whether or not that's revealed necessarily uh i, I mean it's implied it's implied uh, and it's very explicitly discussed in the book apparently and i have some more notes on this later that we'll talk about um again that i thought was kind of interesting in, in the novelizations expansion on it uh but it is basically the same idea that they went for that is this like signal device to be like look humans got to the moon yeah, they're advanced enough for whatever it is <laughs> that the aliens are wanted to know. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, our, our our cats did not enjoy this film. <laughs> no, no, it's a lot of silence and then random like obnoxious, like random noises. shrill beeping yeah, and squealing. And the cats were just like, "No, thank you. <laughs> Do not like this." Just as they would get relaxed, a different weird sound would happen. <laughs> yeah. Then we jump to our next plot. We jump forward in the film after the, the the sound thing. It just hard cuts, and we jump forward. It says 18 months later, and we are now joining uh, in media res a, um, a space mission to Jupiter. Uh, shuttle's craft or spacecraft Discovery 1 is on its way to Jupiter. Uh, we don't really know why, and neither does the crew, as it turns out. 
uh, yet. They will find that, or Dave will find that out later. Uh, but I wanted to know if any of this came from the story, and it sounds like not. This feels like a separate story to me uh, because, again, with what I knew of how short the the Sentinel story was, I assumed it was basically the moon story part. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I wanted to know if any of this came from the book. So you are correct in your assessment. This sequence is not from the Sentinel or from Encounter at Dawn. I did go ahead and skim a third short story that I saw in one place cited as some inspiration for this movie. That story is called Rescue Party. Mm-hmm. Um, full disclosure, I did not skim this one as closely as Encounter at Dawn, um, partly because the PDF of it that I found had like weird PDF mess ups in the text, oh, you yeah. know, where the like weird line breaks and yeah. words smash together and stuff. So it was kind of hard to read. But I didn't seem super super similar to this, other than that it's about a manned discovery mission through space. Um, they do pass by Jupiter at the beginning of that short story, but it is not their destination. Okay. And we did talk about in the prequel that initially their destination wasn't going to be Jupiter in the mm-hmm. film. It was going to be Saturn, but they couldn't, they didn't like the way the rings looked yeah. <laughs> when they were doing the special effects, so they just changed it to Jupiter, apparently. But yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, that is kind of what I assumed. Uh, so then we're probably going to get into a lot of things here uh, at this point. Now that we're past the the opening moon sort of story, we're going to get into a lot of stuff that is not in the book, but we'll, we're going to talk about it anyways. Uh, speaking of the next thing, the spaceship, and and I have a feeling a lot of this stuff is going to be come from um, Kubrick's own mind, and specifically all of the scientists and like science. Uh, uh, what is the word? I can't. There's a word for uh, like futurists and stuff that he worked with, uh, kind of designing and coming up with the, the 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 designs of the spaceship and the the interiors and everything for this film. But I wanted to know if the rotating spaceship that simulates Earth gravity, which is what uh, at least a section of the Discovery One that we see, and it's the main section they're in. It's this rotating ring that spins to create centripetal force so that they it basically like recreates gravity. I don't want to know if that was described at all in the stories that you read. I did not find any mention of that in any of the material that I looked at. Okay. So I think you're probably right that uh, that was from Kubrick. Yeah, I think Kubrick, and again, uh, yeah, he he consulted with quite a few. I talked a little bit about in the prequel, at least artist-wise, he consulted with some people that were, like, very into, like, sci-fi art and were, like, big in the sci-fi art world. And specifically one guy, uh, I can't remember his name, who who a lot of his work inspired a lot of NASA stuff and, and the American space program and stuff like that. And I'm sure he was talking to other scientists and all kinds of stuff. And Clark himself, I'm sure was a, a, a big resource for this uh, in terms of like coming up, dreaming up the, the, the tech and the side and the science fiction stuff that we see. Cause a lot of it actually, you know, does we'll talk about some of the other elements of it, but a lot of the tech itself is very grounded in a realistic way, whether, you know, how achievable it is, is its own thing, but it's, it's at least fairly believable in terms of yeah. like it looks grounded believable. In, yeah. I buy it. Yeah. Yeah. You buy it. And, 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 and again, a lot of it is grounded in like actual physics and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Uh, although I, from everything I've heard, the rotating spaceship to simulate gravity is way more complicated and probably not anything we'll ever do for complicated <laughs> reasons that I don't understand. I remember there's some podcasts, they were talking about it recently and they were, they were figuring out about like, 
There was something, some reason that it was like, eh, we probably won't ever do that. It's probably not. Like, it's mm-hmm. kind of doable, but it's, it's, there was some issue with it that, and I, I just don't remember what it was that, that made them think that we probably really won't ever do that. It had, maybe it had to do with how big it needed to be or something. Yeah. I think it was something like, in order to like do that and spin it, it either needs to be too big or spin too fast or something like that, that basically made it like, eh, we probably just won't, won't do that because it's right. not worth it. I thought I could be wrong though. So big question, uh, obviously, uh, one of the main and most memorable things about this film uh, is HAL, HAL 9000, the, the, uh, the artificial intelligence, the computer uh, with a personality that uh, a personality interface or whatever they say um, that controls the Discovery One spaceship and that they talk to. I want to know if there's a HAL 9000 or a, a robot like that, and I wanted to know if it has a little red light interface that they talk to because that little red light is... Very important to the mm-hmm. sort of whole vibe of Hal. So Hal is not from anything that I read, although he was by far my favorite part of the movie. This was also the only part of the movie where I felt like I was watching a movie instead of a fever dream. It is probably my favorite part of yeah. the movie, mostly. Now, I will say the spaceship in Rescue Party is called S-9000. Mm, so maybe the, so the name a, um... could have been, they might have been pulling from that. Um, I did have this in better in the movie. Uh, HAL 9000, I think, is very, like, classically sci-fi. Yeah. Um, great character, great villain. Um, and then the conversation about whether or not he has feelings, I thought really hit different amid all the discussion of AI <laughs> that we've been having this year. Oh, yeah. No, it definitely is one of those things that, uh, again, uh, with with the rapid onset of the AI revolution and stuff that we've kind of been going through over the last year or two uh, is definitely feels very um, timely. And, there, you know, there are just especially in that interview at the beginning of the film where they're like they're watching like the news interview where they're talking yeah. to that guy and he's talking about like, oh, it seems like it has a personality. Do you think it does? And they're kind of like talking about like, you know, do you basically asking like, do you think this that Hal is like uh sentient or whatever you know or has uh, emotions and feelings and stuff like that or is it just like a robot is it just a computer but yeah it's i i thought that all was very interesting so i just did a little bit of quick searching to see if i could find anything about like the inspiration for Hal or anything like that and i on a wikipedia article there's a whole wikipedia article for Hal, uh and i there's nothing specific cited uh it sounds like initially they had planned for it to be more of a robot Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was initially named Socrates. And then I mentioned in the uh, prequel at one point, it was Athena named Athena uh, when it had a, a woman's voice basically uh, before they landed on HAL 9000. But apparently in earliest draft, it's like a humanoid robot. And there is a humanoid robot in encounter at dawn. Maybe that's yeah. So, And it says it's introduced as overseeing project Morpheus. I don't know what that is. Uh, which studied prolonged hibernation in preparation for long-term space. Uh, Anyway, so it sounds like it's a, yeah, it was from an earlier draft of the script doing something else kind of, and then it just slowly morphed into the, the robot that was like the space ships, you know, Mm -hmm. central nervous system basically. Uh, And yes, the, the name, the name it said came from just literally like just what it stands for. Cause I was right. It says Hal's name, according to RC Clark is derived from heuristically programmed algorithmic computer. So Hal heuristically algorithmic. Uh, so that really there wasn't. And apparently after the film, they noticed that Hal is just one letter shifted off from IBM. 
uh, and people <laughs> speculated that that was kind of like a fun little jab at the movie. Um, but Clark and Kubrick both said that that is not the case. Uh, saying, quote, about once a week, some character spots the fact that Hal is one letter ahead of IBM and promptly assumes that Stanley and I were taking a crack at the established institution. As it happened, IBM had given us a good deal of help, so we were quite embarrassed by this and would have changed the name had we spotted the coincidence. <laughs> so that is apparently not the case, uh, at least according to them. They could be lying. Who knows? But yes, uh, Hal, obviously, like I said, one of kind of the is also like my favorite part of the film and it's the thing everybody remembers the most that and probably the monolith would being like the two big things and like the Donna man sequence mm-hmm. in the beginning. Uh, but yeah, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great, uh, character. So once Hal starts malfunctioning, they think, they think there's, he's having issues. Uh, they, they're, they're, they're getting suspicious of Hal, So they want to have a con- secret conversation. So they go into this EVA pod and they shut it and then they sit there and they have a conversation, but then Hal is able to spy on them through the little window of the pod and read their lips. And uh, I wanted to know if any of that sequence and any of that came from anything that you saw. Did not come from anything that I read, but I also loved the scene. I really loved the ominous framing from inside of the pod with Hal's red light yeah. just in the window. Just between them in the background, just yeah. sitting there. You can just see him and you're like, oh, crap. And it takes a long time before we get the shot where you see he's reading mm-hmm. their lips. But you just know. You but he's just, he's there the whole time you and you're like, nah, watching. that fucker knows. <laughs> yep. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite little details in that scene is actually right before it. They're talking to Hal about like they're discussing like the issue and like oh you know why do you think that you know this part isn't doesn't seem bad and they're saying it's not bad and Hal's like well I don't know the only explanation I have is human error and they're like oh okay and then at the end of the conversation I love there he he Dave I think turns to Frank and is like uh, I I got a little issue with my EVA pod why don't we go take a look at that and the way he says, see you later, Hal, is like, I don't know, the, the delivery on that was very funny to me. I love I love the way that they like kind of like so surreptitiously like it was, yeah, it was very uh, unsuspicious for yeah. sure. Yeah, uh, I wanted to know if this line specifically that you found anywhere, it's probably the most famous line from this movie. Maybe it's one, maybe at least the one I guess quoted the most. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Uh, I wanted to know if that is from the 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 book in any way, uh, because good lord, the sass is off the charts with this robot. <laughs> it, it you cannot help but like read so much emotion into such a monotone, like yeah, you know, sort of generic line delivery. It's so good. So again, it's not from anything that I read. Uh, I did have this and better in the movie. I really liked Hal's heel turn into a villain. Pretty iconic, yes. I have to say. Yeah, I mean, yes, it's 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 it is one of the most iconic lines in cinema for a reason. Because yeah, it's it's a great little development of character. And again, there's just so much so much emotion and 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 layers to such a <laughs> an emotionless performance, which I think is interesting. Uh, at any point in any of the stories d- that you read, does anybody launch themselves through the vacuum of space into an airlock from like one spaceship to another? Because uh, I thought this was really interesting. And I, I mentioned, I, I didn't mention this coming in, but I mentioned the prequel and stuff. This is the first time I've seen this since I've been able to form memories, I think. <laughs> I think I saw this <laughs> when I was like a young kid uh, with my dad probably and did, thought it was boring, didn't understand it, remembered some of the elements of it, but just in general didn't 
didn't stick with me very well. Uh, and so, but it was interesting watching it now and seeing so many different things that so many other movies and stuff that I've seen very clearly were inspired by or pulled mm -hmm. stuff from. And there was a little scene, and I believe it's in Sunshine, uh, which is a great sci-fi movie. If you have not seen it, it's a Danny Boyle directed film. It's got Chris Evans in it, a bunch of other people, but uh, they're on a space mission to the sun. And at one point they have to go from one spaceship to the other. And I believe they do this. I think it's in sunshine. They do the same thing where they basically blow open an air lock and like launches them from one spaceship to the other. And they know if you, you can subscribe, you can survive the vacuum of space for a little bit of time. Uh, and in the movie, they talk about like it, we had figured out more specifically like how to do it. And it was like holding your breath and like basically creating like a negative pressure in your head or whatever, kind of like the thing you do to like um, equalize pressure, like when you're in a plane or something like that uh, can help. But anyways, I want to know if that sequence is in the book, because I thought that was really interesting. It was not in anything that I read. OK, um, but yeah, I. I mean, I'm not even as well versed in sci-fi as you are, and I'm not even particularly well. Yeah, versed, but but, yeah. I, but even I can see where this film had influence on on further sci-fi films. Yeah, no, no, definitely there, and that's this is just one little scene of it, and again, it really just stuck out to me because I, I love sunshine so much. Uh, but yeah, I I thought that was I thought that was interesting because, and I think I remember reading when I was doing research for the prequel that. At, they they wanted to include that scene, but they weren't sure if it was realistic or not. And then I think they like ended up talking to somebody from NASA or something. And it was like cutting edge, quote unquote, research that they had just kind of figured out that people probably could for a very brief time. Mm -hmm. Like you could be exposed to space and not just like immediately die. Like you yeah. wouldn't you won't die in like a second or two. Uh, in fact, I think it's like up to like. It's a it's a longer time than you would think that you can be in like the vacuum of space uh, before you will like die or, or suffer really severe consequences. Um, obviously, you, you start severe, <laughs> suffering pretty bad stuff pretty quickly, but a matter of 10 seconds or whatever. Again, you can kind of minimize the amount of harm you will suffer uh, and it's totally survivable. So it's actually a pretty realistic scene, all things considered, which I thought was interesting. We talked about there is no robot or whatever. Uh, so obviously this next question, but I wanted to know uh, if this maybe is a, a reference to anything that you could that you were aware of as. And this is the scene where Dave goes after he gets back into the ship and he needs to shut down Hal. So he goes into the server processor room and starts pulling all the all the chips out or whatever and shutting Hal down. And as he's doing this, Hal's like talking to him and begging him not to do it and like saying it's afraid and stuff. And then at the end, when he's finally about to shut down, it starts singing Daisy Bell, which is another moment that everybody remembers from this film, is this the robot slowly dying and singing a, a, an ever lower pitch shifted Daisy Bell. Uh, and I wanted to know if any of that came from any of the stories or anything that you could think of. It's not a reference to anything that I know of. I liked this scene. I thought it was really creepy. Um, I really like that uh, Hal's voice doesn't have like emotion inflected into yes. it still yeah. during the scene. Like obviously his voice changes like as he gets closer and closer right, right, to like being shut down but, and like his voice like slows down yes. and the pitch deepens the like you said. And stuff yeah, but not, they yeah. they made the choice that I think was a very good choice yeah. to not inflect any kind of like human emotion into it as no. he's begging for his life yeah. essentially. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting as well, too. It's a great scene. Um, so many good scenes in a movie that I don't care about, mostly. Um, 
<laughs> annoy some people there. Yeah. But <laughs> we'll, um, <laughs> we'll get into that. We have a lot of discussion about that coming up here in literally just a second. Uh, I, I I enjoyed watching this movie, and I think I may never watch it again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did also like the creepy little song I wanted to mention. Yeah. Um, I, it felt like a little moment of like horror movie Yeah, in this, this, movie in this has, broad sci-fi epic. This movie has... A lot of kind of it, it is very much which Kubrick is just it's one of the things he's very good at is tension and dread and yeah suspense. And so this movie leans into that a lot. Uh, I always as a kid found the opening sequence with I remember seeing that, you know, as a kid and I, I found that opening sequence with the apes and stuff really creepy and weird. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the, the, the apes themselves are kind of creepy looking and because they're yeah, you know, they're. It's that like un- almost an uncanny valley thing of like they look like animals and move like animals, but you can tell they're not actually animals, which yeah. is kind of creepy. And then the biggest thing for me that I always thought was super creepy is once the monolith shows up in the beginning, the music. Oh, uh, yeah. I have a note about the music. Yeah, we later. had a note about that. Just, but I was just gonna, The music is like this this building of like wailing and yeah. it's just very creepy and off putting. And so I, I think throughout the and there's a handful of scenes like that throughout the movie where I think I think this is kind of a slow burn horror film. I mean, it's very much because it is like the whole thing is kind of like just builds this existential dread mm-hmm. under the surface of the whole thing, which is yeah. kind of the point for sure, definitely. Uh, but it, I think that does at times teeter it into almost being like a horror film without ever there without there ever being like a jump scare or like a yeah <laughs> you know any like <laughs> traditional horror film stuff which is really interesting and then my last question is does one of our intrepid explorers or in the, in the sentinel or maybe anything else uh, in the film he ends up dave ends up at the end going through this stargate is what it's called in all media referencing this it's never said or called that in the film from my yeah. knowledge because uh, there's no it's from the moment he goes in there. I don't think there's a single line of dialogue till the end of the movie. Pretty sure. But maybe like one or two, but like m- minimal, if any. Uh, but he uh, he goes through the Stargate and he ends up ultimately in this trippy hotel room, uh, kind of like bedroom setting uh, with like a lit up floor. But it kind of looks like a human world or whatever. Uh, like a human home, like super fancy. I, like I said in the Wikipedia description, it calls it like neoclassical or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to know, and then he sees himself in like different stages of life, but also becomes those different, like he sees an older yeah. version of himself and then it cuts perspective and he is that version of himself. And we'll just kind of watch him age really quickly through a handful of little vignettes uh, before seemingly dying in bed with the monolith there and then being reborn as this, as the space fetus. And I wanted to know if any of that came from the, the book or short story as far as you were aware. It was not from anything that I read. Um, it was very interesting. I have so many more thoughts on it in the next segment. Okay, <laughs> yes. That is, we're going to get into that. Uh, so our next segment is Lost in Adaptation. I didn't really have a Lost in Adaptation questions, but what I did have... Uh, was we're just going to discuss what we think this all means. We're going to get into some other people's interpretations of the film, uh, what Katie got out of the story. We're just going to kind of break down thematically what we think is going on here. My last note before we get to that, though, was that, and this is for St. Louis heads, and maybe other places had this, I don't know, but the sequence in this film where Dave goes through the Stargate is almost identical to the opening sequence when you would go to the St. Louis Science Center when I was a kid, I don't know if they still play this part. I haven't been to the the Omnimax. 
St. Louis Science Center in St. Louis has this thing called the Omnimax, which is similar to an IMAX theater, except it's the screen is wraps around like all yeah. the way around you. Basically, uh, they play IMAX movies there now, but initially it was called Omnimax. And it's it's even bigger than an IMAX screen, and it and it does it wraps around the seats basically, so it it almost encapsulate encapsulates your entire field of view when you're sitting in the seats, uh, which allows them to do really cool stuff because movement when you're moving it feels like you're moving, like mm. when when you're the camera is moving from a first person perspective view, because it's literally filling all your vision. It's like being in a giant uh, virtual reality like headset kind of where it feels like you're moving. And they would always start every movie or every they usually played like nature documentaries and stuff. They would do like you would go like under the ocean or they, they all kinds of different stuff. But before every one of those, they would play this opening thing that like introduced the Omnimax. And it was started with this traveling through a space tunnel thing mm -hmm. that is almost identical to this sequence and very clearly inspired by this sequence. They very clearly yeah. were like, let's do that. <laughs> uh Thought it, I always thought it was super cool. It was always my favorite part as a kid because it was just you felt like you were flying through a wormhole in space, and I just thought it was the coolest thing. Anyways, I, I, anybody else ever? <laughs> I've, I've actually fun? never been in the Omnimax at the Science Center. Really, we went I there a lot, it. but we never did. We never did the stuff that cost extra money. Yeah, yeah. The Science the Center's only, free. Yes, but. That was the only thing we ever did was the Omnimax just because my dad loved it like yeah. a lot. And we, we and we didn't do it every time, but whenever there was something specific, because they would rotate shows pretty often. And whenever there was something really specific that we wanted to go see, I remember seeing like a Blue Angels like in the cockpit, like, you mm -hmm. know, flying around thing. Uh, my friend actually threw up after we... <laughs> He had to leave in the middle. Uh, he got motion sick from it and had to leave, and he threw up on the stairs walking out of the the Omnimax. I remember that. But, uh, but yeah, oh, loved the Omnimax. I don't know. I assume other cities had similar things. I, I, mean, I would think so. St. Louis wasn't the only place that had this, but super cool. And, yeah, it's... If you if you want to know what it's like to to do this the Stargate sequence, just go back in time to St. Louis Science Center in the mid '90s and <laughs> go do their uh, their opening sequence of their Omnimax. All right, it's time to get into it. We uh, we're gonna break down what we think this whole thing is about in the Lost and Adaptation. Just show me the way to get out of here, and I'll be on my way. Was a lost. Yes, yes, and I want to get unlost as soon as possible. Okay, so let's try to unpack this, I guess. <laughs> what do we think this whole thing means? Specifically, the whole sequence at the end. This is obviously the part that is the most, quote-unquote, confusing. It gives you kind of the least... It's the most narratively nebulous sort of mm -hmm. part of the film. And I kind of wanted to discuss what we, we got out of it and what we think the ultimate message is. And I also want to compare that to the sh short story. So I guess first, what is kind of the ultimate message that you got out of the sentinel the story uh as opposed to and we'll talk about the film after that so the short story i think is more or less like a creepy little reminder that we're probably not alone in the universe okay um i so, don't say i would say the movie's not not that uh, the movie's not not that <laughs> yeah. yes um so like they find this pyramid on the moon they can't figure out what it does um and the narrator muses that them finding this has probably indicated to whoever left it that Earth has advanced to a sufficient point for otherworldly visitors. And it has a banger last line, 
uh, the short story ends with, I do not think that we will have to wait for long. Ooh, yeah, that's a good, yeah. that's a good little spine tingling like last line. Um, but overall, I'm not sure that it has like a broader philosophical message akin to what the movie is maybe attempting. Yeah. So we're going to get into some interpretations in a minute. And I touched on this already, but I just kind of want to here seems as good a point as any to kind of put my I'm sure people are interested in what I think of this movie. Um, just kind of broadly, uh, it's an interesting movie, uh, and I'm glad it exists. Uh, obviously, like I said, it it inspired so much of science fiction that without it, or science fiction film for sure, and TV that without it, I don't know, I can't imagine the world, yeah. you know, the 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 media landscape we would live in without this film existing. Uh, we have some other notes about it too. It holds up visually great. It's a stunning film to look at, uh, and it does some really cool stuff in editing and in, in sort of uh, montage and all that sort of stuff that I think is really interesting and really clever. Uh, and again, I'm glad it exists, but it also to me is definitely, at least for me, like a much less interesting film than let's say a similarly paced kind of style of sci-fi film. And that is Solaris, which mm -hmm. we also did on this show. Uh, in my opinion, this I, I find something like Solaris infinitely more interesting than I found this movie. I don't want to say infinitely, but like significantly more interesting than I found this movie because it, it felt more about people. Yeah. And more so about like relationships and stuff. And whereas this movie was more so about something I, like, and that's <laughs> part of it. And we talked about in the prequel a lot of the. You know, the critics at the time had a lot of mixed feelings on this. Yes. And and even some of them that revised their their negative reviews initially still didn't necessarily land on like positive reviews. They just think it's I and I think it's probably in line of what I'm saying. It was like, yeah, it's it's impressive. It's a good movie, but it's also like kind what? of boring and pretentious in a way that's not as interesting as other movies that are also boring and pretentious. Cause yes. like, I would say, I would argue that for a lot of people, Solaris would be very boring and pretentious, but I find that movie again, just way more interesting. And maybe it's helped by the fact that I read the book. And so I knew, I don't know if I was watching them in isolation, but also comparing it to just a different, like Stanley Kubrick film, something like the shining has a lot more to say, at least to me than this movie did. Uh, and again, this is all just uh, your mileage may vary. Maybe you, you have a prof profound sort of religious experience watching this movie or, you know, spiritual, you know, whatever experience watching this movie. But I just felt like it didn't have a lot to say while having a lot to say, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I agree. Um, <laughs> to me, this movie feels like someone challenged Kubrick to make the most pretentious film in the history of film. And he said, ha ha bet. Yeah. And then when people were like, mm, we don't get it. His response was, well, you wouldn't. Yeah. Um, and I, I can see why in 1968, you might've been mad leaving the movie theater. I can definitely understand the polarizing. <laughs> yeah. I totally understand the polarizing reactions because it is both simultaneously this visually stunning feast with really interesting, compelling, even when it is boring a lot of times, not all the time. And I have notes about this, but a lot of times, even when it is boring, quote unquote, it is still really gripping and interesting. 
but not all the time. And and I think the biggest thing is it just doesn't feel like it has a. And we talked about in the prequel about how Clark and him were like, well, we you know if we didn't raise more questions than we answered, we 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 didn't do our job. And that's fair. Like I, I don't need the movie to answer the questions. I just even was having trouble figuring out what questions it was raising. I guess that's yes, I think you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> you know like, what I mean? <laughs> we're, we want we want people to ask questions, but nobody knows what questions yeah. to ask. And I think that's a problem. Yeah. And it's not nobody. And it's definitely, you know, like I said, there's there are uh, I can feel hear feel the angry, you know, maybe not angry, but the the furious typing and, and responses and stuff. And it's not that there's nothing here to to dig into. Obviously, again, as I said in the prequel, there's whole courses and theses and everything written about this film and the interpretations of it. And there are elements of it that I find really interesting. And I think the things that are most interesting to me, that one review that we read, I actually thought really summed it up well, was something about along the lines of the movie is at its peak when it's uh, discussing monkeys and machines Mm-hmm. Speaking of the the apes in the beginning and how later and at its weakest when it's uh, when it's talking about or or uh, when it it's at its weakest when it's about humans, which I also kind of agree with, because I, I do think there's really compelling parts of the film, but that some of the again, I think it's just the ending just doesn't do a lot for me because, yeah. I, again, I, I, I it's not that I want there to be an answer so much as I felt like the questions it was provoking weren't even that interesting <laughs> to me. Yeah. 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 The, the, I really struggled with the last like 25 minutes yeah. of the film, the whole like, like after Hal dies and then everything yeah. there to the end. I was like, I don't even know where to even begin parsing this. Yeah. And I, I the, even within that, I think there's some interesting stuff. I really, and we'll have some notes about it, but I really like the way I think it's really compelling the way that he edited the, uh, Dave like seeing himself yes. and then the perspective yes, switching sure. and becoming him future self that's all really clever and well done and interesting and 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 a very again a very effectively and silently uh ex- kind of shows you what's going on and that he is traversing through this it's a very complicated idea that is being um expressed visually in a very succinct way that I think works really well but I still don't know what I'm supposed to be getting from that necessarily. So anyways, I want to get into some common interpretations of the ending and kind of talk about them. Like I said, honestly, part of the reason I'm going to outside interpretations was just a thing I don't normally do. We kind of just limit it to like what we get out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, the ending didn't do a lot for me personally. Uh, I, I didn't find it. I didn't have a particularly moving or impactful emotional reaction to the film in a way that I do with a lot of other sort of like headier movies that we watch. Uh, So I kind of did want to go to some outside things just to touch on it and discuss it and see what we thought. Um, So Kubrick has always encouraged people to interpret the movie however they want, obviously, but he did apparently offer up in a 1980 interview his kind of interpretation of the ending, which I thought was interesting or which I didn't realize he had done. Uh, And he said, quote, I've tried to avoid doing this ever since the picture came out. When you just say the ideas, they sound foolish. Whereas if they're dramatized one, whereas if they're dramatized, one feels it, but I'll try. The idea was supposed to be that he is taken in by godlike entities, creatures of pure energy and intelligence with no shape or form. 
They put him in what I suppose you could describe as a human zoo to study him, and his whole life passes from that point on in that room, and he has no sense of time. It just seems to happen as it does in the film. They choose this room, which is a very inaccurate replica of French architecture, deliberately so inaccurate, because once one was suggesting that they had some idea of something that they that he might think was pretty but wasn't quite sure just as we're not quite sure what to do in zoos with animals to try to give them what we think is their natural environment. This does mirror a comment that I had, which we'll talk about that I thought was really interesting how in the beginning of this movie, I I thought the scenes in the, the Africa section, the scenes where we're seeing the animals, you can very clearly tell they're on like little sets with like Mm -hmm. painted backdrop walls. And it reminded me of going to the zoo and going, especially the indoor exhibits at the yeah, zoo, yeah, 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 where they have little like enclosures, and then the wall is painted to look like the Serengeti or whatever mm-hmm. to kind of create this illusion of space or whatever. And it, I thought it was very funny that he then references that kind of exactly in his explanation of the final thing. So we actually open with the kind of like zoo like thing and then end with it, which was, which was interesting. Anyway, when they get when they get finished with him. As happens in so many myths of all cultures in the world, he is transformed into some kind of super being and sent back to Earth, transformed and made into some sort of Superman. We have to only guess what happens when he goes back. It is the pattern of a great deal of mythology, and that is what we are trying to suggest. End quote. So, yeah, I, I mean, and I got... I think I got most of that. Definitely the, like, time passing, the life passing, and him being in some sort of weird alien thing. But again... I think the part that falls flattest to me is the part where he goes, we have only to guess what happens when he goes back. I'm like, okay, but, but like, but like, what is why? That? Yeah. And what are we supposed to get? I, I, again, I just, I, I think the, the best summary is that I just, I'm not even sure what questions I'm supposed to be asking about this, let alone what answers to get from it. Um, I will say that his description here matches pretty solidly with the ex- with the expanded description that is given in the novelization from what I could find. Mm-hmm. The novel goes into a ton more detail that the movie doesn't about what uh, Dave perceives when he ends up in this this room um, and his hypothesis about it. And he basically concludes the alien zoo thing. So it does seem like this has been was their interpretation the whole time, apparently, um, because, it can't, again, it's in the book, supposedly. Uh, he also expands on the monolith monolith thing, which I thought was interesting. Uh, that apparently the first one in Africa was like a tool to help humanity evolve. The second one on the moon, as you kind of mentioned, uh, the speculation in the short story is is that it's a signal for aliens that basically when when a- humans find it, they have advanced enough and achieved space travel for something to happen, whatever. We yeah. don't really know what that is. Uh, and then the third monolith on Jupiter is the Stargate, apparently, that allows humans to travel to other parts of the galaxy. Again, the movie doesn't really explain any of that, but apparently it is expanded on in the novelization. So getting into some more philosophical kind of interpretations, uh, a, a thing that I thought was interesting, and I've read zero Nietzsche, so <laughs> I, whatever. But Nietzsche's philosophical tract, Thus Spoke uh, Zarathustra, which is about apparently the potential of mankind uh, is directly referred to in the film because they use Richard Strauss's musical piece of the same name. Mm. uh, Thus spoke Zarathustra. Uh, And Nietzsche apparently wrote that uh, man is a bridge in, in this thus spoke Zarathustra. He was writing about how man is the bridge between ape and the Ubermensch. Again, I don't know Mm. enough. I know Ubermensch generally refers to, but I don't know enough about Nietzsche's writings to really do too much. Yeah, me either. Yeah. Um, Then in an interview in the New York Times, uh, Kubrick gave credence to this interpretation of kind of seeing it through the lens of like Nietzsche and thus spoke Zarathustra. He's saying, quote, 
Somebody said man is the missing link between primitive apes and civilized human beings. You might say that this is inherent in the story too. We are semi-civilized, capable of cooperation and affection, but needing some sort of transfiguration into a higher form of life. Man is really in a very unstable condition, end quote. Uh, also, in the chapter uh, from uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, uh, titled Of Three Metamorphoses, Nietzsche identifies the child as the last step before the Uberman, uh, which apparently also comes after the camel and the lion. I, again, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I've not read <laughs> Nietzsche, uh, which also it kind of supports the interpretation because the star child at the end would would uh -huh. coincide with the idea of like moving through uh, the the evolution before ascension, Ubermensch, whatever, uh, being like a, a rebirth as a baby or whatever. So that that does all kind of tie in. Uh, and then finally, um, another thing that people, another way that people kind of interpret it and, and the film is as an allegory for conception and just life in general. Mm. Uh, and I thought this one was interesting mainly because it's, it's very clear <laughs> visually because uh, this interpretation, you see, sees the, the Discovery One spaceship as a sperm, which, yeah, it's yeah. this giant white long thing with a big bulbous head on it and then jupiter as the ovum uh -huh. and that the meeting of these two as the rebirth of humanity in the star child so you know uh, there's yeah. interesting stuff there it's... but again it's it, it it comes back to but but what am i what what do i what am i supposed to get from that like what is the right. what is what am i supposed to like take to heart from that like okay yeah humanity needs to like sure like we're we're on this journey uh humanity's always evolving um maybe before we reach our truly like most enlightened selves we have to experience some sort of uh, uh, uh outer other world not otherworldly mm. but some sort of like um, we have to like transcend our transcend own humanity perspective basically yeah. and then be reborn as this new race that can actually and there was another part of the ending that i thought was interesting that was in the original version of or an earlier version of the story is that when the star child came back mm -hmm. it it apparently blew up a bunch of satellites like it caused a bunch of satellites in orbit which is actually what we see at the beginning so when the bone flies through the air and then it match cuts to that satellite yeah that's not actually one of the spaceships that like the people are on apparently that's a satellite that in a in an earlier version of the script at the end we would have found out had nukes on it oh and when the star child comes back it like blows up all the nukes and like gets rid of them basically hmm. okay they ended up changing that for a couple different reasons one of them was that kubrick didn't thought it was too similar to like uh uh, Dr. Strangelove, which, he, uh -huh. which is all about nuclear pro, like war and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so he didn't want it to be too, too similar to that. And there was some other reason. Uh, they also found out that there, at the time there was some sort of treaty that there literally there couldn't be nukes in space. I don't know if that's still true, but there was some sort of something with the cold blah, 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 where they literally couldn't have nukes on satellites. So he was like, well, mm -hmm. that wouldn't even be possible so, or something like that. Uh, I'm sure I'm butchering some, but there, there's <laughs> several reasons that they got they didn't do that ending, and instead we just see the Star Child or at, at Earth, and then it kind of ends. Um, but apparently, I think that actually is a slightly more interesting ending, yeah. To some extent, honestly, yeah. it gives it more of like a a, 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 a an overall point. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I I I think I would have liked the ending of this movie more had it ended with him in the room. And like aging, and we yeah. had not gotten the space fetus. Interesting. I didn't know the space fetus was coming. <laughs> yeah. And like we're so we're watching the movie, and <laughs> he dies in the bed, and then we pop back to Earth, 
and we st- we started to see the space fetus like burgeoning yeah. up onto the screen yeah. and i just went no <laughs> Yeah. I I did I was not prepared, y'all. I yeah. was not ready. Yeah. I um, was like, oh, you didn't know about the space Venus? <laughs> and you're like, I did not. I know. <laughs> and here's the thing, and maybe the problem is that I am watching this movie for the first time in 2023. I couldn't take the space fetus seriously. It's definitely it, Yeah. I if he wants me to get a serious meaning out of it, I cannot. I'm sorry. I yeah. simply cannot. It's it, it definitely is visually one of the things that has aged the worst. Yeah, it's it very looks goofy looking. The least good, like of all the all the effects in this movie, like still hold up and look great almost entirely. Like this film again, just mostly looks incredible. Uh, but that shot in particular, when you see it, it's like the most fake looking, I guess, for yeah. lack of a better uh, term. Um, but it, it, I don't hate it. I, I think, again, the ending, the original planned ending to me is a little more interesting because it at least feels like it has more of a point. And maybe he didn't want it like was another reason he didn't like it is that it actually gave it more of like a concrete, like, yeah, sort of uh, through line. But, um, but yeah, I, I, it is interesting. And like I said, I think it it's just yeah, I think the biggest thing is it just didn't it didn't raise the questions it did raise weren't that interesting to me. It's like, and it's like, I again, I'm not mad at it for raising questions and not giving answers. I'm just mad at it, not mad at it. I'm just disappointed that it didn't raise to me particularly interesting questions. Yeah. It's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and I think that is a problem that I have with it too, is that it did raise questions, but those questions were not as interesting as I might have hoped. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying, it's been, I wish I, I wish I had like re listened to our Solaris episode. Um, cause that's, I think that again, just the closest sort of analogy we have mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, as a film goes, uh, cause that one, I, I, I loved that movie and, and the book. Um, and I, and I think the thing that I thought was really interesting is that the questions there, you, you're left with tons of questions when you get done watching that movie, but the questions in that were like, okay, did it matter that this person that came back wasn't the person that he thought, again, I'm trying to remember. It's been so long since we talked mm-hmm. about, it. I don't remember all the details, but it was stuff. Cause like you know, where the, does it matter if this person that shows up, his dead loved one that shows up isn't actually the person? Does it, it, he's also dealing with like the guilt of their relationship and the fallout and what happened and, and like kind of raising questions about what happened there. How, how, how responsible is he for that? And again, I don't remember all the details, but it, it raised a bunch of questions that I liked thinking about when the movie ended this one. I'm like, okay, what, what questions am I pondering when this movie ends? Okay, so he, other than like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> I, I, and I think that's what boils down to. It's like, sure, I'm pondering, like, what did that mean? Right. But but then when I get beyond that and I go, okay, so then when I, even if I didn't find out like what it meant, I'm like, okay, so he's in this weird room and he sees himself aging. Okay, so this is about like life and death and 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 the way maybe that our life like kind of passes by without us even noticing but that doesn't really thematically tie into anything else in the movie really Mm -mm. uh most of the movie seems to be about like evolution and technology and kind of like the dangers of of technology obviously the you know we have the weapon at the beginning with the tribe uh and and them using the weapon to kill the other tribe and then moving into space and then we see the dangers of how and and how kind of um 
we, we don't really understand exactly how how works and then it kind of goes rogue and tries and kills a bunch of people and you know kind of the morality of like is it is it a sentient thing should we respect it as a sentient thing is shutting it down totally fine you know there's interesting questions there but then we get to the final one and again i think maybe that's what the the, the original ending is more interesting to me is that thematically ties into the rest of it if he, yes. the, the 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 star child or whatever comes back and like vaporizes the nukes that are around because it knows in order for humanity to achieve its next level of evolution it needs to fucking be done with all of this death making stuff whereas up until this point it's been about because it, it's always been about it's all been about evolution and about how humanity evolves and what allows us to evolve and 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 how we get in our own ways and stuff like that and then the ending, as it is in the film, I don't feel like it says anything or even asks any interesting questions about that. He just ends up in a space zoo and then and then becomes back as becomes a back as a space, space fetus, fetus. And I don't know what. Yeah. Okay, no, I, I agree. I think if they had gone with that original ending, it would have tied together thematically a lot better. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah. And I mentioned it, I think, in my final verdict. But I, one of my major issues with this film was that it felt very disjointed to me yes yeah and i actually think they did a pretty good job tying it all together because it i actually was impressed by how like it kept feel it would feel disjointed and then it would tie back in a way like oh so dr haywood who because you know we mm -hmm. when we jump from the monolith on the moon to the jupiter mission you're like what do these have to do with each other this is, seems completely unrelated and for the whole time it's, it is unrelated and then at the end when he when he gets rid of hal you're like oh they're on the mission to figure out and investigate what the heck mm -hmm. that whole encounter on the moon was. That's interesting. And so it, it always finds way. And then again, like when we jump from Africa to the moon, it's the same thing. We're like, well, what is this? Why would we hold a thing in Africa? Doesn't seem relevant to anything we're doing now. But then when they find the obelisk on the or the monolith on the moon, you're like, oh, okay. So we're like, that all works. But then when we get to the end, it just doesn't feel like that ties back in. Yeah. With everything else. Anyways. All right. I'm sure we'll have more to talk about, this, especially in your final verdict and stuff. But that's the end of our Lost in Adaptation segment. Uh, be inter really interested to hear what other people have to say about this when we get to our, uh, our, our next prequel episode in the feedback. But for now, we're going to see what Katie thought was better in the book. You like to read? Oh, yes. I love to read. What do you like to read? Everything. Okay, so we know that the pyramid from the short story becomes the black monolith. Um, and the pyramid is on the moon um, to prove that humans can go to the moon. Yeah, basically. So I was intrigued uh, initially at the beginning of this movie to see what the implications of putting a monolith on Earth yes. was. And I was mildly disappointed that the movie didn't really come back around to that. And like, and then I get it. Like, I get that the movie is implying that like it helped them evolve and discover yeah. tools and whatever. But it also felt a little bit like they put it out there and then just let it kind of dangle. I will say that it is. We don't, and I don't know if we need to, but it is. You do wonder. You are left wondering, like, okay, so was that? Is it still there? Did we? Yeah, find like, it is it leave? still there, did it, or like, did it leave, or did we? It, did it just like get lost to time? Yeah, they get, like, like buried what, or what, what, yeah, happened? what happened to it? Yeah, that is an interesting. Yeah, 
Uh, you mentioned the choral music, aka the wailing. Yes. Um, which is used uh, initially in the the Dawn of Man sequence, but, but then, then lately later, later on, as whenever well. the monolith shows up, yeah. basically, yeah. Um, and I found that music so upsetting. Yes. Um, and again, I get it. I know it's supposed to be upsetting, yeah. but that doesn't mean that I have to like it. Oh. So. No, I, I think it's very effective. It creeped me out yes, as a kid. And it's I, effective, but I prefer the lack of it in the book because mm. I didn't like it. I, my only problem with it in the movie, my only note, and I, I'm qualified to give notes to Stanley Kubrick, uh, would be... <laughs> My only note would be that it goes a little too long in a few of the scenes. I I, yes. I like what it does, and I, it makes you uncomfortable. I, I I'm not. I want to say I don't want to say I liked being uncomfortable. I just I did for a while, and then it's like okay, and maybe that's even the point. But I don't think it is. I don't think the fact that it goes on long enough that you're like okay, I, I get it. Yeah, like that's it, it, not the yeah, point. I don't. It goes think. on long enough to where it stops being upsetting and starts being just annoying. annoying. Yes, and I think that's the thing where it's like if I just I would just trim it a little bit. Like if it, I don't know how long it goes on in that opening scene, but it feels like five minutes. I would maybe like three three and a half minutes would have been enough. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just like just bring it back a little bit because yeah it does eventually just get kind of annoying and i don't think it's supposed to be annoying it's supposed to be upsetting and like you said that is a a very distinct difference and it did eventually just become annoying which is which is different i mentioned that i did like how the movie depicted uh the mystery of like oh what's going on on the moon why haven't we heard from the moon base but i wish we could have gotten the scene where uh the monolith slash pyramid is discovered Mm. Rather than just like jumping to, oh, they already found it. Oh, and now this is like a weird random little thing. But in the short story, uh, we have a narrator. And when he spies this like thing glittering in the distance on the moon's surface, doesn't know what it is. He is at that moment in their like moon base and he's frying sausages for them to eat. And I was like, I read that and I was like, I really hope... (laughs) That somebody fries sausages on the moon in this movie just just as like a random nod because you would only get that if you had read the short story and i was like that would be so fun so now i'm sad that nobody fried sausages (laughs) on the moon yeah i yeah it's definitely one of the things where because kubrick was so adamantly leaning into like realism that he Mm -hmm. was like all right everybody eats like paste yes Which I did think that was fun. I like, like, we see several different meals, and one of them yeah. is they're drinking them out of straws when he's on the zero-G ship. And then when they're in the, the ring of the, the ship when they're traveling to Jupiter, um, they have the little trays of, like, different colored different paste. colored pastes. Baby food. Uh, that they eat. And I thought that, I thought it was very interesting. I thought it worked. Uh, I thought it looked cool. And, yeah. It, mm-hmm. No, it did. It, it could did, be a fun little. Sure. It, I, the version in the movie definitely provides more like um, it, it def- it's a world building details that feel make it feel very like, quote unquote, real. Whereas if somebody was cooking sausages, it might not. But, you know, I get it. Who doesn't love a fried sausage? All right. <laughs> let's find out what Katie thought was better in the movie. My life has taught me one lesson, Hugo, and not the one I thought it would. Happy endings only happen in the movies.
We covered a, a lot of my things that I had in this section, but I still have a few notes. I really liked the sequence with these space satellites set to uh, Blue Danube waltz, mm-hmm. uh, even though I do think it went on a touch too long. It's true of like every sequence in <laughs> yes. this movie, to be fair. It's like, okay, it went on just a touch too long. Yeah. <laughs> Almost every sequence. I, I loved the retro futurism look of the space station and like the spaceships and everything. Uh, the red chairs. In the space station, I, in particular, were chef's kiss. Yes, yeah, the retrofuturism in this movie is awesome. The aesthetic yes. of the film is super cool. All of the sets are gorgeous. All of the, it's all just super neat. It's super cool. It feels a lot of it feels pretty like real. I, obviously, mm-hmm. that's not what the world looks like and looked like in two thousand one, but it definitely has the feel of some of the stuff. You know, we see. There's a little detail that I had that I thought was interesting is when they're watching the. Uh, news report on the in the spaceship on the way to jupiter the screens that are watching on are vertically mm-hmm. formatted i don't yeah. know if you, they're watching yeah, on like yeah. tablets that are like look like ipads basically which i thought was interesting and you know sometimes that's chicken and egg stuff where he maybe less of him predicting the future and more so engineers at apple be like loving 2001 you know like you right. never know with that kind of thing how much of uh how much they were predicting the future versus people in the future were emulating stuff from the past but Anyways, yeah, I, I and just in general, everything in this movie, again, all of the the set design and the 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 idea of space, the retrofuturism is just super cool. Mm-hmm. I also really liked that this movie imagined uh, future space travel as being like airline travel was during the mid century. Yeah, like with the stewardesses and everything. Oh yeah, yeah, it is absolutely. It just looks like a it looks like a, a Delta commercial. Yeah, like a Delta magazine, but in spread, space. But in space, <laughs> which is, yeah, it is fun. I also really liked that the movie didn't just like hand wave a total artificial gravity device when you're in like the spaceships. And chose to depict like a low or like zero gravity instead. And obviously there's some artificial gravity in like the larger structures. Um, I don't think there is. But well, when they're other like, than when the spinning on, thing. The spinning thing. But what about when they're on the like space station before he goes to the moon? I think that's also that's also spinning. Is it also we spinning? See it. Remember, because that, that shuttle is landing and the outside oh, the whole yeah, thing is right. spinning. Yeah, yeah, it's also spinning. That um, is artificial gravity, to be right. fair. But it's not like magic artificial gravity. It's no. Real I'm saying like gravity. I like that it didn't just go with like ah we're just mm, right right. Yes. There's an artificial gravity device on yes. everything. Yes. Yeah. And everything. No, everybody just walks normal yeah, everywhere. There is no hand wavy artificial gravity. But I thought it was really interesting to see. It's particularly like when they're on the spaceships and like the way everybody like walks and yeah. moves and you see like the the stewardess you're talking about they have like that you see that her shoes say like grip sh- they're, yeah. like, they're like velcro <laughs> shoes or something like that and she like sticks to the floor or whatever yeah it's yeah. cool um also i have a question for you yeah because i i understood how they did a lot of the like low gravity shots and stuff where they're like turning the camera different ways but there was one scene in particular where the stewardess there's like a circular opening and you see her walk up the side of it yeah, and like go through a door. How'd they do that? The whole set rotates. The whole set rotates. So basically the same way they did um, in Inception, the hallway mm-hmm. fight scene where they're like running up the walls. And so it, it, that that scene and that's at the beginning when they're on the shuttle or whatever. And um, you see you're looking down a big like tube basically mm-hmm. it's like the it's like the fuselage of like an airplane or whatever it's kind of what it looks like 
and she's at the end of it. And you can actually see the camera start moving or you can see the motor start moving because as soon as she starts walking up the wall, the, it shakes a little bit. And mm-hmm. it's that what that is, is the motor for the set she's in or what, however they turned it, like starting to turn. And it shakes a little bit at the beginning when it starts moving. But then after that, it, it, it smooths out and it rotates. And so it's literally just the camera is attached to the set. So it's looking like the ground is, you know, the ground is here and she's walking and I'm, I'm illustrating the Katie here. <laughs> the ground is here. And then the camera is attached in the same perspective or the same um, orientation as the room is. And then the whole thing rotates. And so she's able to walk. She's just always walking on the ground, basically. Uh-huh. But what is the ground is rotating and mm-hmm. the camera's rotating with it. So you don't even notice that it's rotating, basically. So it ends up looking like she's walking up the wall and yes. onto the ceiling. Yeah, which they also did, like, Fred Astaire famously uh-huh. did, like, a dance scene in a room that did the same thing where the camera's attached to, like, the room as it's rotating. And he's, like, dancing up the walls and onto the mm-hmm. ceiling and stuff. It's just the room rotates. They do it several times in this movie. And that one is actually the less impressive one to me. There's one later where Dave and Frank are getting into some part of their spaceship and... It took me a minute to figure out what was happening because it it's in it's rotating in two pieces, kind of. And I was like, how did they do that? Because we see them do the same thing where they like climb up the wall into a different thing. They mm-hmm. And it, I was like, but but it's slightly different. And I, I figured it out and they're just rotating the part, the camera and their parts not move anyways. <laughs> Point being, it's just a big rotating room, essentially. Okay. All right. Thank you. That's <laughs> how they did that. For the, uh, yeah. Without getting into more specifics. That's, that's it. I, I liked the um, the virtual chess game where Hal wins. Yeah. The cl- classic trope. Yep. Um, and I really liked that the hibernation pods just straight up look like sarcophagi. Yes. Got, gotta love a little bit of creepy foreshadowing. No, absolutely. Yeah. They're like, oh, you're, what you're in your tomb, sir. Absolutely make them look like sarcophagi. Yeah. Then, <laughs> oh no, they're dead. No <laughs> <What>? way. <laughs> I don't buy it. All right. Let's go ahead and talk about what the movie nailed. As I expected. Practically perfect in every way. This is going to be a very short section because really the only thing that the movie nails is the basic concept of finding some kind of alien technology on the moon's surface. There you go. That's it. That's it. <laughs> World's shortest uh, shortest movie <laughs> nailed it segment in our history, I think. All right, let's go ahead and get to a few odds and ends before we get to the final verdict. We kind of mentioned it, but this is really one of those movies where it has been parodied and homaged into oblivion to the mm. point that watching the original is is sort of a surreal experience now. Like yes. it, it's it's hard to do. It's hard to watch. It's something like The Matrix or Star Wars. Star Wars is a little different, mainly because I saw it at the time. Watching it for the first time, quote unquote, basically, now is yeah. a weird experience. Um, because again, it has been homaged and parodied and, and like, especially, you know, the, the, the song, um, which I think that might be the, what, what is the, the, the one that plays during the Dawn of Man sequence? Bah, I thought it was bah, just called, bah. I thought it was the same title as the movie. Is it not? 
What is it called? Two thousand one, a space odyssey. No, no, no. The song during the Dawn of Man sequence. Yeah, like the main theme, right? That's not. That's a classical piece. Oh, is it? I'm fairly certain. I don't think I have literally only know that as the main theme of this movie. I I could be wrong, but in I'm... fact, I think it was like the only solid thing that I knew about this movie going in was that that music was in it. Oh, maybe it is just 2001 A Space Odyssey theme. I thought that one was a. I, I guess maybe you're right. I thought that was a different uh, classical piece. It could be based on something, I guess. But that, that's literally all I've ever known it as is the 2001 A Space Odyssey theme. OK, my bad. Never mind. Um, there are a bunch of other scores that are or songs that are just classic yes. pieces, obviously. I, I guess I thought for some reason I thought that was. But anyways. Uh, but like that music is so it's been used in so many things for mm-hmm. so many, especially mm-hmm. for spoofs and parodies it, to the point where it's just like you hear it now and you, it's hard not to like not roll your eyes at it and just be like, oh, yeah. OK. But, you know, yeah, it is. T- it is one of those things where it is interesting to to watch uh, now. One thing that I loved in uh, the opening Dawn of Man sequence was the completely unbothered tapers. Yeah. Just just in there with the Muzzing guys in the around. ape suits. Just not a care in the world. Not at all. They're just hanging out, <laughs> hanging out. Uh, during that sequence, what, one of the things that was wild to me is there's the moment where there's literally just a dude in a monkey suit that gets attacked by a leopard. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. And honestly, I'm I'm going to take issue here because that ape is a lot bigger than the leopard. And I feel like in reality, it could have held its own a lot better than that. Yeah. The leopard just kind of kills it almost immediately. Yes. But like. You think it would be able to at least a yeah, little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, like gorillas and chimpanzees and stuff can like. They could mess up. They could mess leopard. up a leopard. It, yeah. Unless they get completely blindsided, which was one did. It got left on. I guess it's possible. But yeah, you would think it would be able to put up a little bit of a fight. And yeah. it does not. <laughs> also, it's probably because for the f- the purpose of what they were filming, the guy, it's a trained leopard jumping on yes. its trainer or whatever. And he can't like try to throw it across the room <laughs> or whatever or break its jaw or whatever an actual chimp would do in that setting. So, Yeah. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to the leg strength of the mimes in that yes. sequence. So much squatting and jumping. Yeah. Oh, they're just constantly squatting. The yeah. Whole time. It was very impressive. Yeah. Uh, couples. Uh, there's there is one shot in this opening. I mean, it's the whole film is just gorgeous. But in particular, the shot where you're looking up once the monolith shows up and it's I think you posted it today, maybe on social media. Uh, or one of them. There's several of them. But mm-hmm. the main one in this opening sequence is where it's it's a shot up of the monolith at the sky and you see the uh the like it's like an eclipse or something. It's like a or maybe not an eclipse, but you see like the moon and the sun or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's just so freaking cool. I love that shot so much. Uh and I was also really impressed, speaking of the mimes, with in general, I thought they were pretty convincing, but there's one moment in particular. Uh, and that is after the monolith shows up where the 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 main the the first ape thing that figures out tools slash weapons is playing with that bone. The way that single actor is doing that was so convincing to me that mm-hmm. I literally forgot it was a person in a suit <laughs> and not just like a chimp or something like the way the mannerisms of how it's playing with that bone and moving around. 
felt so convincing to me. Like I literally forgot that it that it was <laughs> that it was a person in there. I was like, oh, that's right, that's a person pretending to be an animal. <laughs> I mentioned the the retro futurism in this movie. Uh, and I want to just say something that I always find really interesting about like older media that's set in the future is how often it struggles to imagine how fashion specifically yes. will progress because it, it's a little bit different than like depictions of anything else. It's just like a lot of struggle with imagining what are people going to wear yeah. <laughs> in the future? Yeah. Um, Cause everybody that we see, just looks like they're in the late 60s yeah yeah with some slight tweaks to make it a little future yeah, yeah. it's the same it's similar to the like the chairs and stuff mm-hmm. like it definitely it's just that retro futurism where it, everything looks like the 60s but like what if it was in the future <laughs> what if the 60s were in the future <laughs> yeah uh, there's this you, you talked about how some of this really does feel like a horror film and this is one moment that i was not prepared for and i thought was so cool uh, the whole lead up in this movie, everything is locked down on tripods, these big grand cinematic shots of mm. stuff. It's like either big wide shots or it's the cool shots of the camera rotating where, you know, or these big like sweeping slow moves through space and stuff like that. It's all grand and 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 these big grand tableaus and stuff like that. And then when we get to the moon. We get to the crater where the monolith is and we get the shot of it's a big wide shot of the crater and you see the monolith in it. And you're like, oh, that's cool. And the music starts building up and then they start walking down into the crater. And for the first time in the movie, and it's not the last time they do it a few times, but for the first time in the movie, we cut to this like first person view handheld shot walking down into the crater with yeah. the monolith like there. And it's so creepy and visceral and cool. It's like all of a sudden we have like a found footage like. Yeah, like approaching film. this yeah. terrifying thing. Yeah, it's so, it like literally sent chills down my spine when it switched to that shot. I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. Again, it's so effective because nothing like it in the film has looked like that up until this moment. Uh, and then all of a sudden, we're, yeah, we get this, like we're in, we're there walking down into this thing. And this is like, oh my God, uh, I loved it so much. Oh, there's an intermission in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like a second long. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we talked about it when yeah. we were watching it. It was enough time for them to pause the film yeah, however in the long theater it was. they would actually yeah probably yeah. just pause it or um but yeah the little the little thing pops up intermission, intermission yeah. and i was like bring that back yeah absolutely immediately yeah listen hollywood the people want intermissions oh my god yes i don't know why and, and you would think that theaters would want them yes because oh my god you get a chance to go buy more stuff yes. from like i just don't understand you know, I I just, even... and like in the in this era of every movie is close to three, three hours. hours. Yeah. Uh, the people need intermissions. Yeah. I need to pee. This movie wasn't even that long, and they had an intermission. I, I mean, know. it's a long, but it's like two twenty. Like it's not that long compared to some movies that we've covered, and and especially yeah, like you know, Endgame was like four hours yeah. long or whatever. Just put stick an intermission in there. Intermission. Put an intermission in there. I will get up. I will go to the bathroom, and then I will say to myself, you know what? I could go for an icy. Yeah, I could get some more popcorn. Yeah, exactly. I don't understand <laughs> why we have gotten rid of them. I, and I, there must be something where theaters can't just do it on their own. Like they can't. Yeah. They're not. Yeah, allowed there's got to gotta like, be something. Because if I was a theater, I would just do it. I would just yeah. put a break in the middle of the movie. I would and find a spot the in the thing. middle of the movie. Here's and, the thing: it would only take one movie to do that. Yeah. And then all all the rest of them would have to follow suit. Yeah. 
I guess the only thing I can think is that y- you run the risk of there's, you know, I'm sure there's lots of people like us who'd be like, oh, thank God, let's get an intermission. There's not an insignificant number of people that'd be like, what the, why is there an intermission in the middle of this movie? I got to sit here and wait. Oh, this sucks. I hate that. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah, definitely, I guess that is at least some number of people. And maybe they just think it's not worth it. There's probably not that many people clamoring, knocking their doors down for them to add intermissions back. But if they were to do it, I wonder if they would, they're worried about the, I think, I think we should all vote on it. I agree. (laughs) I think they would be surprised. I think most people would be like, absolutely. And I think it's a thing where it's like, if your movie is more than two hours long, yeah, or maybe like two 30 or something, there's some, there there could be some length where it's like, after this, put put an intermission in. If your movie's 90 minutes, I don't need an intermission. Yeah. But if it's, if it's three hours long, I could use an intermission. Uh, so another <laughs> random thing that I really like in movies, I like when you can randomly tell that the miniatures are miniatures. Yeah. Because most of the time it looks fine when they're yes. using oh, miniatures, yeah, great, yeah. like 99% of the time. But then you get that like 1% where it just out of nowhere, all of a sudden everything looks really cute. Yes. Yeah. You're like, oh, <laughs> oh yeah. look at that teeny little spaceship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so we kind of touched on this, but I just want to expand on it a little bit more. And, you know, one of the biggest complaints about this movie is that it is boring. And y- y- yeah, yeah, it is. It is pretty. It's cool. And it's not uninteresting. But I I could even I, I have a lot more patience for movies now than I used to. Uh, and and especially certain types of movies. But this one really didn't grip me in the way that just comparing it to a, a movie we watched very recently um portrait of a lady on fire which is our bonus episode for april right Mm -hmm. yeah um which is also a very it's about the same length like two just over two hours uh also similarly kind of slowly paced yeah takes its time deliberate arguably boring to some people but i i was riveted to that whole movie the entire time and this movie I'm a space nerd. I am the I am the target demographic for this movie. Like I am I like sci-fi a lot. I I don't mind movies that are slower paced and quote unquote boring and I love space. I love space exploration. I I since I'm a little kid I have always loved all that sort of stuff. It's it's I find it endlessly fascinating. But even I during some of the sequences in particular in the second half of the film when we're on the spaceship the scene, and the one that stuck out to me in the first note where I had this, is the scene where he goes outside in the EVA pod to get the piece out of it to inspect it. Oh my it. god, that took so goes long. Goes on for so long. So long. And again, I, this is for me, and I'm like, okay, we could just a little, just a little bit of, of editing here. Just a little bit. Like, I get it, and I, I just a little bit. <laughs> We can pick up the pace a little bit. Ugh. Some other notes I had. Uh, I love all of the cockpit shots with the HUD lights on their faces. It's mainly mm-hmm. Dave, but whenever Dave is sitting in like his EVA pod, the lights reflecting on his face, it yeah. all looks so cool. Yeah, it's it, just... it makes really good use of, um, is it still diegetic if it's light? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And that's, yeah, <laughs> kind of. I, I don't know. There's probably, it's motivated lighting. I think uh-huh. it's generally how do we refer to it in for lighting, but it's, but it's like the lighting that's in the world of yes. the story. As it's opposed not, to, yeah. As opposed to like the big lights that they use to light a set. Yeah. It is, it, you know, it is definitely, it's interesting because this is in a period where 
cinematographers and directors and stuff were not worried about lights being motivated. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's the way it's always um, kind of discussed in modern terms when talking about lighting, which is a thing I I watch a lot of stuff on because I in my day job, I do cinematography. And that is a big move in modern cinematography is we've moved much, much more, in my opinion, slightly t- to the detriment of some things uh, in the direction of uh, all light needs to be motivated in real and in the world in some way, mm-hmm. which is also one of the reasons who I get, this is a whole other thing, but the, all of the conversations that everybody always about, like, why is this so dark? Why is everything so dark? A big part of that isn't that people don't understand, or isn't that the cinematographers like don't know how to light things. It's, it's <laughs> way more complicated. It's actually that they know how to light things so well <laughs> that it's like, uh, it's basically we're cinematographers, very modern cinematography the style that is in fashion broadly is all light that you see on screen needs to have a reason to be there Mm -hmm. other than i want to light this thing up it needs to be coming from something it needs to have a reason to exist uh we it is uh, it is it is frowned upon in many modern cinematography sort of oeuvres to just like have a light hitting somebody's face that is where is that coming from? So like in the spaceship, in this example, in this film, with them being in that set, you know, in, in, in like the, the, uh, the EVA pod, if his face was like just being hit by some bright, like blue light or something that looked cool, but like, you don't know where it's coming from. That's a big no, no to a lot of modern cinematographers. It is. So in this movie, and again, this movie is kind of ahead of its time in that regard, in the sense that most of the light that you see does feel very motivated, which creates very realistic and cool feeling things sometimes. Um, in this instance, it's all the light panels from the right. thing is like shooting and hitting his face and stuff like that. But it also leads to in certain situations, um, again, in like in nighttime settings, n- when you're out in the world in nighttime cinematographers now try to make it look like you're actually out in the world at nighttime and guess what is dark out so yeah. it's dark and yeah. that's what people you, are complaining about to some extent yeah, you I, end up with your your really hard to see like game of thrones scenes yes. because the only light is coming from the dying campfire yes or the, literally the moon <laughs> that is reflecting yeah. in a way and in back in the day with the way they would light a moonlit night was they'd have a big blue light or whatever hitting you in the face but that's not what moonlight actually looks like and cameras are good enough now and, and sensors and blah, 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 that you can actually kind of do that. And if you're viewing those things in the right situations and on the right screens set to the right settings, it looks gorgeous and it looks real. But if your TV is not tuned perfectly, if you're blah, blah, blah. And, and even then, even beyond all that, it can just be stylistically, it can be a thing that people don't identify. It just doesn't, mm-hmm. even though it is realistic, quote unquote, looking, it can be something that people just don't like get and just be like ah it's just dark i don't know as a whole other diatribe that i already started on apparently so uh <laughs> <laughs> i didn't want to get into it too much but i i have so much to say about that because it's one of the most fascinating things to me is and it's it's a constant discourse on twitter of people being like why are all movies look like mud and they're dark now do people not know how to why does everybody suck it and it's like it's not that they suck it's that they it's a different style and it yeah. drives me insane uh, but that nobody understands, like not nobody. I've seen plenty of good threads out there breaking it down, but it's the the vast popular, like broad kind of cultural consciousness is like everything's just dark now. Why? And it's like there's a reason. You might not like the reason, but there's a reason behind it. They're not just bad at their jobs. But, <laughs> anyways, uh, 
I will say one of the other things about this movie that I really enjoyed is how horrifyingly clever it is in its simplicity. In particular, there was one sequence that sparked me to write this note, and that is the sequence where Hal kills the people in stasis. It literally, we just cut back and forth between like three shots. It's like maybe even two shots. It's the vitals. It's the screen with all their vital readouts or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I think occasionally shots of the actual like sarcophagus, like stasis pods. Yeah. And then occasionally, eventually, Hal's little red light. Yeah. That's it. There's no dialogue. There's no nothing. And it's such minimal information. But the way that is all edited together is so, again, it's so simple, but conveys so much with such sparse imagery, too. It's just like this is readout and then a little red light. And it's just so ominous and cool. It's uh, again, little moments like that. The actual art of filmmaking in this film. Incredible. Fantastic. Unparalleled. It's just the 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 overall like thematic narrative and stuff isn't all that interesting to me. But (laughs) anyways, Uh, another shot that I, I loved and thought was super cool is at the end when he does get to Jupiter, we see this awesome shot of. Apparently, we've reached like a, 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 a an alignment of all of the moons of Jupiter. Uh, yes, yeah. And it's like we see Jupiter, and then it's all the moons lined up, and then the obel- or the monolith is just there mm-hmm. in the middle. It's super cool. I love that shot. It's awesome. Um, although then another thing, editing wise, that I it's so weird. It bounces back and forth. So much of this movie is edited so brilliantly, and then we get to that, and you talked about this, the montage of at the end when he goes through the portal. Mm-hmm. And he's like flying through the portal. It starts cool. We get all these cool lights and colors and blah, like he's going through a warm wormhole. And then he gets to some world and we're like flying over. This looks like earth landscapes. It's like yeah. Monument Valley or something like that. But it's all like color shifted. Yeah. <laughs> to like these weird, like negative. Like like dual tone, dual tone, like things. Yeah, that's just that he basically took all the highlights and made them like one color and all the shadows and made them another color. And then they change colors a bunch mm-hmm. and it goes on for. Oh, my ever. God. Forever. It goes on forever. forever. It goes on forever. But then at the end of that sequence, there's a great moment that I love, which is when he's coming out of that. And right before we arrive in the the bedroom set we see a close-up of his eye and it shifts through all those different colors every time he blinks it shifts through that color and then it eventually ends on like natural you know Mm -hmm. color again and i love that little moment that transition back to like reality or whatever out of this wormhole it's just you could have just made the sequence before it like half the length it was (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) Oh, speaking of those like dual toned landscape images, though, I thought those aged pretty poorly. You think? Yeah. To like to me, those looked like your something... note says some pretty solid age makeups. No, 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 no. The the landscapes. The landscapes. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, the dual tone yes. landscape. Yes. That he goes over. Sorry. Yeah. Those to me, like more than maybe anything else. Yeah. In the movie, looked like something that was made in the 1960s. Yes, yes, absolutely. It just doesn't re- like, yeah. It, it's not nearly as trippy or cool as it like yeah. the rest of the stuff happening yes. in that sequence is. And then again, it lingers on that longer than anything else, yes. which is really weird. <laughs> which gave me a lot of time to contemplate yeah. how bad it looked. Yeah, I, I agree. It was definitely one of those moments where it's like, okay, this isn't even. This is the least interesting part, and we're spending the most time on it. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, but yeah, my next note, uh, I thought the the old age makeups on yeah. Dave were pretty solid. Yeah, they're pretty good. Uh, all things considered, they they they're very subtle and worked pretty well. Yeah, and like the first one particular. It was where he's just like middle aged, yeah. where he's just like a little bit older. Yeah. Was very subtle and, yeah. and good looking. No, yeah, it was very good. Very good stuff. All right, before we get to the final verdict, we want to remind you you can do us a giant favor by heading over to patreon.com slash this film is lit. Support us there for a few bucks a month, get access to bonus content. Uh, like I said, we did uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire for our last month. This month we're doing, what is it called? Uh, Dead oh, Drop, Drop Dead, Dead Gorgeous. Dead Gorgeous. So every month we do a different movie uh, or something like that and talk about it that's not based on a book. And you can hear our thoughts on that. Just support us for five bucks or more a month on Patreon. Get access to that. And at $15 or more a month, you get access to priority recommendations. Or if you have something you'd really love for us to talk about on the main episodes, shoot us that recommendation and we will add it to the list as soon as we can. You can also do us a favor by heading over to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Goodreads. Uh, just give us a follow, likes. I don't even know how that works anymore. They've changed the way... Like on Facebook in particular, I, like there's no. like different like likes and yeah, follows. Yeah, you I don't, can whatever. like follow or you can like a page. I I don't even hey, really whatever. Know. Just do whatever you can to see stuff posts from us. In particular, uh, the the prequel like the feedback question posts where you can vote about which one you preferred, and more importantly, you can write your feedback and we will talk about it in the prequel episode. Uh, definitely go do that for this one. And then also you can do us a favor by heading over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to us. If it's a platform that you can give us a rating and a review, those are always very helpful. Just drop us a five-star rating and write us a little review, and we would appreciate that as well. Katie, it's time for the final verdict. Now, uh, are you ready for your sentence? Sentence? But there must be a verdict first. Sentence first. Verdict afterwards. This is a tough one. I genuinely enjoyed reading the short story. It had evocative descriptions, it moved at a good pace, and the ending was just deliciously creepy enough. I would honestly love to see the source material adapted more closely. Comparing the two, the short story can't match the movie for cultural impact. Everybody and their mother knows at least some reference to 2001, and you can very clearly see the impact that it had on the sci-fi genre, especially in film, and on film in general. Yeah, even broader than just yes. sci-fi, just in, yeah. Here's where it gets tricky for me. Obviously, the movie is visually stunning, but there were long stretches of it where I felt less like I was watching a movie and more like I was watching Stanley Kubrick flex on his fellow filmmakers, which is fine, but it did make for an overall somewhat boring experience. The only part of the movie where I felt truly engaged with it was the HAL 9000 sequence. The opening and closing sequences felt only tangentially connected to the meteor middle, and I was left unsure of what the overall message was. And quite frankly, I'm not entirely convinced that Kubrick didn't just make up a meaning later on when people wouldn't stop bugging him about it. So that's the rub. Do you award the movie for being a visual behemoth with near unimaginable cultural impact? Or do you reward the short story for being tighter and arguably better at actual storytelling? To be honest, I don't know what the answer to that is. I think it depends on what you're looking for. So feel free to disagree with me, and I'm sure many of you will, but I think I have to call this one a draw. Interesting. 
No, I think that makes sense. Again, it's it very much, obviously, in this one, it's a very subjective experience of just, you know, what did you enjoy more? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it is hard to, you know, or not necessarily what did you enjoy more, but it is hard to measure what you enjoyed more against what the film is, which is, yeah, apart from its cultural impact, it is just a really impressive, even if it didn't go on to have this huge cultural impact in a vacuum, it's still a very impressive thing to watch. Yeah. Even if it is kind of boring. and pretentious and you know what all the other things we've discussed <laughs> it is still fascinating like even in a vacuum if i didn't know anything else i would still want to have seen this movie once but then i'm i'm good i don't need mm-hmm. like it's i don't this is not, i don't <laughs> think i need to i did contemplate giving it to the short story just to make people mad <laughs> yeah not really i would not really do that no, I know. but i do think it would have been funny yeah yeah for sure <laughs> All right, Katie, what's next? Uh, Up next, we are going back to the well of animated fantasy. Um, Just hitting it hard. I I know. Uh, Well, we're hitting some things that I've been like wanting to watch and read. And and this this book series in particular has been on my to read list for a very long time. So we are going to be watching The Black Cauldron. I'm excited for this because I this is a movie I never saw. Yeah. Heard a lot about. I, I have seen it. Um, and it is, it's very interesting. It's definitely like, like, it's not one that I have like fond childhood memories right. of cause I didn't see it until I was older, Yeah, but it's definitely like, you can tell it's from the Don Bluth era of Disney. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, like I said, all I've ever heard about it is creepy and weird, like, but I know nothing else <laughs> about it. So I'm interested to see what its whole deal is, uh, which I think should be fun. But we'll be doing that in two weeks' time, and in one week's time, we'll have all of your feedback on 2001 A Space Odyssey. Can't wait to hear what you all have to say, where you disagree with us, where you agree. You know, I, I, I would not be surprised if we have more agreement than we're expecting. I think. Yeah. I, sometimes, I, <laughs> you know, sometimes when we say what I think are controversial opinions about things, I expect more backlash than we get when people are like, actually, no, I think it's pretty boring, too. <laughs> like a lot of times. And I don't know if that's just the fan base we've cultivated or what, but it is. I am interested to see what people think about this one and, and how uh, if we have any like super ardent defenders, you know, like mm-hmm. not even defenders, but like uh, champions for the film who are like, no, this is the greatest. Mo-. I don't know. I'm interested yeah, to see. We'll Can't see. wait. But we will see. Uh, we'll see about that in one week's time until that time. Guys, gals, non-binary pals, and everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And and keep keep being awesome. awesome.